Good morning, everybody. Today's scripture is from 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I, ha if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. I always love when I can say things and people have to talk back to me. And I'm like, oh, wow, I did it. Um, yeah, so as you can see, I'm not Tommy. I'm sorry. Um, I wish I could be Tommy, but I'm not. No, it's OK. I can be my own person. Whew. All right, that was my own little pep talk. Sorry. Um, yeah, so my name's Aaron. I've, uh, I've been with you guys a few times before. Um, so if you're new, hello, my name's Aaron. Um, if you're not new, you might have seen me once or twice. Um, I'm a professor of theology over at Southeastern University. It's you know, about 45 minutes away from here. Um, and yeah, it's, it's wonderful. If you know anything about me and a few of the people who know me here um, kind of well, you know that I recently got engaged. Thanks. It's fun to do that just because I get that response again. Um, and then I know what your next thought is, like, that's why he's speaking on that passage. Right? Um, no, actually not. But kind of, and then we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see where we go. Um, but today, we're actually going to do something a little bit different, right? Tommy, Tommy's probably, and I'm not just saying this because then Tommy will invite me back, but Tommy is probably my favorite person that I've ever heard just teach the Bible in a church setting. Uh, he's, he's such a gift, I think, to Watermark. And uh, yeah, there's a, we can say yay to that. Uh, thanks. Um, but I do things a little bit differently, right? As a theologian, I'm trained to think through things a little bit differently than maybe a biblical scholar might. And I know your next thought is, ah, crap, theology. Because um, I get it. I hear all the time from like students who are like, I don't need Jesus. I just, I'm sorry, I don't need Jesus. They do need Jesus. I don't need theology. I just need Jesus, right? And I always kind of go, where do you get that from? And the other day I was talking to a pastor and I was like, hi, I'm Aaron. I teach theology. And he was like, oh, I don't do that theology stuff. I just preach Jesus. And I'm like, that's where they get it. <laughs> oh, that makes sense. Um, I, and if you are thinking about it, pray for me because school starts in uh, another week and a half. And I've already gotten an email telling me why the first assignment's going to be late. Uh, 
that email actually came two weeks ago. So if you're a student, be better. If you're not, pray for me, right? Um, today we're going to do things a little bit differently. I'm going to talk about kind of theology, what, what we're doing here when we do theology, and we're going to take a look at this text from a theological lens. Tommy typically takes a look at the text and he'll tell you, here's all the context, maybe here are some words, here's what it means in its original grounding, and then here's how we can use it. And that's wonderful, that's a great method. I do things a little bit differently when I'm thinking through things theologically. I want to ask some, some other questions, and, and I'll show you what we're going to do here. Because theology has kind of two main tasks, right? So if you've never learned this before, theology has two tasks. If you're like, I don't need to know theology because I don't do it, in reality, we all do it. Anytime that you have ever had a thought about who is God, and you've come up with some kind of answer even in your own head, you are doing theology. The problem is sometimes we're actually really bad theologians because we don't know that that's what we're doing, right? We're coming up with ideas about God all the time, and sometimes we actually come uh, across a good idea, and a lot of times we come across very bad ideas. So a theologian has kind of two tasks. When we're actually doing, uh, doing theology for the church, we say we do these two things constantly. The first one is this. We do what we call the critical task, which is taking a, a view or taking an idea from the church and kind of deconstructing it and reevaluating it. Does this idea make sense? If I grab in more uh, thought, more understanding, if I do some research, if I do some thinking about the church and how the church should run, does the idea make sense? The problem is a lot of times theologians will actually stick in this task, they'll deconstruct something, they'll be critical about something, and then they stop. And this, this can become hard because we don't actually kind of fulfill the second role, and the second role is the constructive task, in which we actually say, okay, if that idea was wrong, where do I go to? How do I grab something else? And I reconstruct our ideas from there that will better fit the church in the world today. So there's two theologians um, that were really instrumental to the 20th century. Uh, they're both dead now, so they're part of my old dead white guy club that I talk about in, in class. The first one, and I don't know what happened here. His name is not Carl A. It's Carl Bart. Um, very grandpa-like figure. Uh, I love his hair. I want, I want it. Um, he said this. He said, the pastor and the faithful should not deceive themselves into thinking that they are a religious society which has to do with certain themes. They live in the world. We still need, according to my old formulation, the Bible and the newspaper. Or maybe something more common today, the Bible and your smartphone. Not the Bible on your smartphone, but the Bible and, right? Because in some sense, what Karl Barth is saying is we're not just a religious community that comes together to believe the same things together and to encourage ourselves in our beliefs. We're a community that's actually coming together to actually work out in the world, to participate in what God is doing in the world. And if we miss that part of our theology, if we forget that theology is supposed to be doing that for us, then we've gone astray. The other old white guy is um, Paul Tillich. Still somewhat of a uh, grandpa to me. I want that in my life. We'll see. He's dead. Uh, he said this. He said, theology as a function of the Christian church must serve the needs of the church. A theological system is supposed to satisfy two basic needs. The statement of the truth of the Christian message and the interpretation of this truth for every generation. Theology moves back and forth between these two poles the eternal truth of its foundation and the temporal situation in which the eternal truth must be received. 
It's our task to constantly try to find what is that truth and how do we actually use that truth for today. But one thing that we've done in terms of doing this with truth and wanting to find truth is that we've often been stuck in our own heads. We've come to this reality that actually says, if we can just think properly, we're going to act properly. If I can just believe the right things, I'll be okay. Now, if I don't have kids, um, all I have is a dog. So, and I was just told that's not the same uh, by Mickey specifically. Um, yeah, thanks, Mickey. Um, I have, uh, you know, I don't have kids, but I do know as being someone who was a kid, how many times I did something that I knew I shouldn't do, and then when my parents would ask me, like, don't you know you shouldn't have done that? I'm like, yeah. And of course, that's infuriating, right? They're like, then why did you do it? Uh, and the next thing is, I don't know, right? We, we've gotten to this kind of reality that we think that if we think rightly, we're going to act rightly. Where did this come from? Uh, this is kind of going back to a guy I do not want to be my grandpa uh, because he is creepy looking and I don't like his eyes. Um, this is Rene Descartes. He's a philosopher from the 17th century. He makes this very famous statement that I'm sure you all know, uh, maybe not in this formulation, but it's cogito ergo sum, which really just stands for I think, therefore I am, right? I think, therefore I am. And what Rene Descartes was trying to do, you're like, oh no, philosophy, even worse. Um, what he was trying to do was he was trying to provide a way for actually people to come to a, a, a spot to say, here's how I can prove my own existence, my own way of being. Because if you know anything about the Enlightenment time period in which Rene was from, or anything about philosophy, there became a problem that we kind of started saying, how do we prove something is true? Specifically in their time, it was like, how can we prove the Bible's true? And they said, we couldn't. So Rene said, well, how can I actually still say something is true? And he says, really at the base of all things, because I can think, I can exist. Because I think, I am. And he built his whole theological and philosophical framework from this one idea. And this holdover still today for us in the church has actually created the reality of, if I can just have the right thought process, I'm just going to do the right thing. But I don't think that works. I mean, the example of the kid is great, right? Like, we all have kids in our life that, like, we know knows not to do wrong things, but they do it anyways, and it doesn't work. But if you think about those two theologians I just mentioned before, Karl Barth and Paul Tillich, both of them because of their theology, shaped the way the church is today. Karl Barth wrote 13 massive books on theology called Church Dogmatics. Um, I mean, he literally was writing them to the day he died. Paul Tillich wrote a lot of other books as well that have shaped and fundamentally changed the world, uh, the way that the church works. But both of them, both of them, to the point that they died, were in, we're in the middle of extramarital affairs. If there's someone who knows what is right about God, it was these two theologians. They knew it. They knew it inside and out, and yet Karl Barth was having this extramarital affair with, the, with his like, assistant who was like helping him write. Really weird stuff. He even 
convinced his wife to let this other lady live in the home and then told his wife about the whole thing, right? Strange. Paul Tillich had um, pen pals, as he would call it. I guess it'd be like similar to sliding into someone's DMs today. Um, when you're married and other ladies' DMs, right? That was like Tillich's, Tillich's vice in his own life. Both of them knew the right stuff, and they even wrote about how they knew what they were doing was wrong, but the desires that they had were actually pushing them to keep doing it. I think, therefore, I am isn't working for us as the church. I think there's lots of examples. You can look at a lot of different, and I'm sure you've seen it, pastors in the news that are doing really weird things and having problems in their churches. And they're the leaders of our churches who know the right information, and yet they keep doing these things like affairs and like other things that I don't even want to mention and causing lots of uh, trouble in our churches today. So then I said, okay, well, what's, what maybe, what's the better way to think about it rather than I think, therefore, I am? And so there's this one, right? You are what you eat. <laughs> I was just informed that the yellow things are pineapples cut up. I, I couldn't figure that out myself because if this is true, then this is me. <laughs> um, and I don't like to think of myself this way. So I don't think you are what you eat is the next best one. Really what we want to get to actually, and this is something that I want to kind of use 1 Corinthians for today, is to actually say something that a theologian has been recently been publishing and working on. Instead of saying, you are what you think you are, or even you are what you eat, rather, he says this, you are what you love. We're not thinking beings, he says we're loving beings. When you, ask, when you ask the kid, why did you do that? Why did you do that thing that you knew you shouldn't have done? It's because I wanted to. Because I desired to. When you ask Carl Barton, Paul Tillich, why did you have those affairs? Because they desired to. They knew it was wrong, but the desire overrode that knowledge. This is, this is where we're at within the church, that we have to start to re Imagine and reorient the fact that we're not thinking beings, but we're loving beings. And this is who we're created to be, beings that love. Right? I'm going to give you this. It's a little bit of a longer quote, so kind of stick with me. It's going to be up here. But this is a quote from uh, James Smith that I think is really kind of pointed here. And you never thought that someone was going to bring up Victoria's Secret in church, but here I go. Um, he says this, I suggest that on one level, Victoria's Secret is right just where the church has been wrong. More specifically, I think we should recognize and admit that the marketing industry, which promises an erotically charged transcendence through media that connects to our heart and imagination, is operating with a better, more creational, more incarnational, more holistic anthropology than much of the evangelical church. Lots of philosophy words, we'll talk about them, right? In other words, I think we must admit that the marketing industry is able to capture, form, and direct our desires precisely because it has rightly discerned that we are embodied desiring creatures whose being in the world is governed by the imagination. Marketers have figured out the way to our heart because they get it. They rightly understand that at root we are erotic creatures, creatures who are oriented primarily by love and passion and desire. As Augustine famously put it, you have made us for yourselves and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. This is not a matter of intellect. Augustine doesn't focus on the fact that we don't know God. The problem here isn't ignorance or skepticism 
at issue is a kind of in-the-bones angst and restlessness that finds its resolution in rest. When our precognitive desire settles finally on its proper end, the end for which it was made, rather than being constantly frustrated by objects of desire that don't return our love. Basically, what Smith is saying here is this. The reason why Victoria's Secret is so good at drawing us into it, both men and women, is because it's promising this thing that we all desire. But it's not just Victoria's Secret, it's Instagram. It's promising us something that we all desire. We desire to be liked. We desire to have these things. We desire to have this fashion. We desire to have these, these things, these material possessions. We desire those, and those then shape the way that we, in turn, live our life. Sometimes we might even be able to say, we desire to have safety and security more than we desire God, and so that safety and security tells us what to do. We desire first the things that we want, and then we kind of throw God in there on top of it. But our marketing, the marketing and even in our world is much better at actually going at our desires rather than uh, trying to tell us what's right and wrong. I, I think uh, one of my professor friends put it this way. He said, he said if I kind of use this quote in a different way, he would say something like, Victoria's Secret is fanning the flame of our heart while the church is dumping water into our brains. Trying to put out the flame but actually using our head when the whole problem has actually been in here in the heart. Right? And so what I want to do is now, if this is a problem, how can we reconstruct it? How can we actually say that this idea and thinking, this theology about if we just have the right information in our heads, we're going to be okay? How do we reorient this in a better way? And this is where I come up with First um, Corinthians. And we're going to get a little bit deeper, but I want to point out John first. And this is something that we theologians do. We don't like to sit in one book. It's, Tommy loves it, and I'm like, oh, okay, but i got to talk about these other 18 different things. First um, John says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever, love, uh, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. We're going to just stop right there. God is love. In order to know that love is to abide in God. To actually have love is to be in God. John is kind of pushing us towards this orientation that says our beginning place, the beginning part of where we are as beings, to understand love is to be in God. It's not to have the right knowledge. Augustine said the same thing. It's not about knowing God, but it's actually finding where the desire of our heart is always pushing us towards the divine. Other philosophers have said it in other ways, and some people have tried to always say this in new in, in ways. One way that I really like is, um, one philosopher put it this way, we have a feeling of total dependence. There's something in us, there's this feeling somewhere down that we're trying to find something that we're dependent on. But I want to use a little bit of just basic logic, right? So you're like, oh no, theology, philosophy, and logic, great. But, you know, a basic logic formula might be... Um, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, right? So what I want to do is I want to apply that logic to what Paul is doing in Corinthians because if you know what's happening in the church of Corinthians, you'll know things are not in a good shape. If you read 1 Corinthians, you'll find a Paul who's quite pissed. He's not a happy guy. 
There are Christians in the church that are suing each other over trivial matters. There's one dude, and this is just weird, there's one dude who's sleeping with his stepmom, and the church knows that, they're, that he's doing it, and they're just like not doing anything about it. There's one part in Corinthians where the church is doing something really, really bad, so bad that Paul says it's causing the death to happen to the church. And that thing is they're having communion, which in the time was a full meal. People would bring food together, kind of like I grew up in like a very Pentecostal church when I was a kid. Any of those like Sunday potlucks? Did anyone do that, right? Kind of like almost like a potluck thing where they would all bring food to eat together. But there were some people in the church who had a lot and had, had too much and were bringing it. And there were people who were in the church that weren't eating and, and getting sick. And this is one of the things that Paul gets most angry about. As he's saying, you're taking the Lord's Supper wrong. There are those who are hungry among you while you go get fat. He's so angry. But then he kind of goes at the end of chapter 12. He's talking about being in the Spirit. He's talking about what does it mean to be in God. And at the end of chapter 12, he literally says, I'm going to show you the most excellent way. I'm going to show you the right way. It's like he's, he's just gone through 12 chapters, and then he's like, wait a second. I need to tell you the right thing. I need to tell you the thing that I've really been needing to tell you this entire time. And that's where we get 1 Corinthians 13. It starts from the reality of Paul is saying, here is the, the starting place. Here's how this works. And so just to reiterate just this one portion of it, it says this, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And that sounds wonderful, and it's like one of those great things that you, like everyone uses at their weddings, and they like to tell it to each other, and it's beautiful, and it's a moment. And I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong, but I'm saying it's incomplete. Because this is not what Paul is doing in this chapter. Paul is not talking about getting married. He's talking about a way of being a Christian within the world. And so using that logic, if God is love and love is here, then we're going to kind of replace that language a little bit with God and find out that Paul is actually saying something beautiful about God as well. He says this, God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God does not dishonor others. God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. God always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God never fails. To me, that's beautiful. It's easy to say God is love. It's harder to say, what does that love look like? But Paul tells us right here. This is what God looks like. This is who God is. This is what it means to say that God loves. Because all these things, all these things are what love is, and God is that love. But if we actually are doing this as a Christian and we're reconstructing it and saying, okay, well, that sounds great, but what does it mean for me? Then most of this New Testament thing that we read, I mean, most of the Bible is always pushing us to be like God. So I'm going to take it one step further. If this is what God is like, then we might even actually want to say something like this. This is what we should be like. 
We should be patient. We should be kind. We should not envy. We should not boast. We should not be proud. We should not dishonor others. We should not be self-seeking. We should not uh, be easily angered. We should keep no record of wrongs. I even tried to fix that typo, and I forgot. Uh, we should not delight in evil, but rejoice with the truth. We should always protect, always trust, always hope, always persevere, because love never fails. This is, this is the formulation that Paul is saying, if you would just get this right, all that crap that the Corinthian church is dealing with would actually not be a problem. If you could start from this point, you're not going to be having people suing each other in your church. If you start from this point, you're not going to have this dude sleeping with a stepmom. If you could all just get this part right. The hard part is this is hard, right? This is not easy. But I think it's not easy for us oftentimes because we try to go about it the wrong way. We try to actually manufacture that love in our life through something that we might call behavior control. We actually try to make this work. And so rather than, uh, yeah, well, let's just kind of show you here. So what we often try to do is go the opposite direction. We go, okay, look, if I can be patient and I can be kind and I can force myself to do these things, then I will have love. Right? If I can just force myself to be patient, then I'll be loving. Um, as my fiance knows, that is not the case in my life. When it comes to driving and, uh, what is that stuff called? Traffic. Yeah, that thing. I hate it so much I block the word out of my mind. I, I can try to force myself to be patient in, in traffic, but it doesn't work. And I'm constantly yelling and then going, ah, crap, I'm an idiot. Right? And having to like renegotiate again, once again, that I'm failing at just the simplest thing of being patient. Because oftentimes we try to force ourselves to be loving by actually looking at these lists that Paul gives us and says, if I can just do that, if I can just put this on my wall and I can think about being patient every day, I'm going to manufacture that patience in my life. But this is exactly opposite of what Paul is telling us to do. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is this whole idea of being in God, also being called being in the Spirit. And if you do these things, then you get the gifts and the fruit of the Spirit. To put it in the way of James Smith, you are what you love. If you just desire God first and, and work towards loving God, then these things will be added to you. Because this is what the Spirit is. This is, what, this is who God is. We can't miss the crucial step. And so rather than behavior control, we want to talk about being in the Spirit, where if we start from being in the Spirit, we'll be loving which then will actually create patience and kindness. Paul gives us these lists not because he's saying, I want you to go out and try to be patient. Paul gives us this list because he says, I want you to go out and be loving, and this is what true love looks like, patience. This is what true love looks like, keeping no record of wrongs. You can't say you have love if you, do, if you keep those record of wrongs. You can't say that you have love if you're not patient. We're not what we think we are. We are who we love and what we love. We love money. We know where that ends us. Jesus makes these statements, right? For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. If you love that, here's what you're going to get. 
If you love your own self over the other person, here's what you're going to get. Because Jesus does the exact opposite. He loves others before himself. This is why Jesus might have said here at the time that he was about to, to you know, go die. He knows his death is, is coming, and he says this statement in John. He says, a new command I give you, which I think is funny, because we're actually in John chapter 14, and Jesus has already said this before. But he's kind of like saying again, like, hey, pay attention. This is the thing. And he says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Not if you tell someone, this is what I believe about Jesus, will they know that you're one of his disciples. And this is coming from a theology professor, right? That my job is to be like, let me tell you some things about Jesus. It's actually the reality that says, if we would just first love and desire Jesus, then people are going to know who we are. Because it's going to renegotiate our world. To go back to what Karl Barth said, having the Bible and the newspaper in the hand, when we actually are looking out into the world as Christians, I'm sure all of us in this room can think about specific situations that we know are not the love of God happening in the world. But we can look at the newspaper and see how much we like to prioritize our own self over someone else. It's scary, but oftentimes we think about things First, not by the love of God, but by our own self. Oftentimes we might say, and, and I know this is a little political, but here I am. Um, we think about families being separated from each other. It's, well, it's for my safety and my security, so it's okay. It's for me. I can be safe. I can't think of something more evil. And, and, and less the love of God. Jesus doesn't die because he follows the law. Jesus dies because he tells the religious establishment, you have it wrong. Jesus says, I don't care about the law. I care about the commands of God, my Father. This is a tough space. If we're not challenged by what Jesus does then we're not living Christianity. If the love of God doesn't push us in new ways that are scary in ways that actually might call us to give, uh, lay down our own lives, we're not being Christians. Because quite literally, this is what Jesus says it is. Love one another. You'll know what that love is by that list in 1 Corinthians 13. You'll know it because this is what it's going to look like. Paul says elsewhere in and um, which one am I going to use here? You know, it's one of those things you're like, I don't know. Theologians, we just kind of throw stuff out, right? Um, Paul talks about this thing that's a really strange word in Philippians. He, he uses this word called kenosis. And it's a Greek word, but it literally just means kind of self-emptying. And he says this, have the same mindset as Christ, who considered, who, who even though he was God, he didn't think equality with God was something to be used for his own benefit but rather gave up his life. Now you go do the same. Paul's really forward. He doesn't like to mince words. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to take communion, 
And, and what I want to do within communion is I want you to take some time and reflect, not so much on do you have the right information, but are you truly desiring to love and be with God? Are you truly ready to actually take this moment to actually say, I want to be with God. I want to be like God. I want to be in this space. As a theologian, I can say, sure, we're gonna use the Bible to ground our, our love, to make sure that we're loving properly. But we're gonna start from where Paul tells us to start. In Galatians, he says, he says, have you started by the Spirit or have you started by trying to do it your own way? He says, if you'll just live life in the Spirit, you're not gonna gratify the desires of the flesh because your desires are gonna be for what the Spirit desires. The picture of the Bible is a beautiful picture, but it's one that challenges us constantly day in and day out. And if we're not being challenged, we might not be listening. And so what I want you to do in communion is to recognize that this very thing that we do is the challenge of Jesus to do this. Because in the moment of communion, Jesus is breaking bread with the guy who's gonna sell him out. And he knows it. But he doesn't just break bread with the guy who's gonna sell him out. He also washes that guy's feet. Judas was there. Judas was having his feet washed by Jesus. And Jesus knew it. I can't think of any greater love than the one that can say, let me wash the feet of the person who's gonna have me killed. I think that's one of the most beautiful loves I've ever understood. And that's the kind of love that we as a church should be showing the world. That's why 1 Corinthians 13 is not for weddings, it's for every day. It's for every person. We don't just do that with the spouse, fiance, we do that with everyone. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna take communion. And in communion, we're not gonna have a song afterwards. I want you to take time to either reflect on that, I want you to take time to pray. I want you also to take time, if there's anyone even that you have a problem with, to go to that person. Let that love actually be made manifest today. And then go in peace whenever you're done. Let's pray and take communion. God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the moments that we have, not just to understand you, but to be in your presence and to love you. We thank you, first and foremost, for the fact that you would love us and that you'd be patient with us in the fact that we fail at our own love and that we fail at being like you. I pray that you would be with us this week, that you'd be with us in these moments to help us to be more loving, to be more like you day in and day out so we can better be your representatives to the world. Amen.